So I hope you're doing well tonight. If you don't know who I am, my name is Michael, for the rest of you. Um, I want you to know it was just so sweet to listen to you worship and, and feel God just give me this overwhelming sense of affection for you. Just this overwhelming um, gratitude for the reality that I get to stand up here often and open up uh, the words of the one who made us in his image. Um, it's just an incredible privilege. But I, because I love you, I want to tell you something. Um, I've been continually haunted by this idea that more and more people go to church to be entertained or to consume. And um, I'm going to do something a little awkward here in a minute because I don't want to be the one uh, you came here for, and I don't want to entertain you. I want to help you worship uh, the living God. And so I'm going to get myself out of the way through a little bit of confession. I did this a couple weeks ago, so strap in. Um, I'm frightened by the way I behaved last week when my 35 weeks along pregnant wife told me I often make her feel like an inconvenience when she needs my help. It bothers me continually how just because my daughter's four and doesn't get out of my way, allowing my life to be easier, how quickly I get angry with her. It's frustrating to me um, and alarming how quickly I write narratives about people who love me. And it's even more troubling how often I believe God wants nothing to do with me, but instead would like to get rid of me instead of trusting that I'm his son and he's my father. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we did not come here to be entertained. We came here to be participants in a story that you've been writing for a very long time. And so tonight, Father, with, with me out of the way, would you step in now and would your spirit move in this place? Would it move in a way like it never has before? And would we recognize that we are not coming here um, to just do church, but that something very much supernatural happens when this happens? God, would we now, like Moses, talk to you like, like a man talks to a friend face to face? Would we see you and would we be changed? by you in a real and powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible, it's a pretty cool book, right? Or a really confusing one, it's totally your call. Uh, but it's this incredible piece of literature that God has given the power to speak through centuries and cultures and contexts and time. It seems to continue to be relevant uh, as relevant as it was when it was first being written and passed around as letters, and even before that in the Old Testament, to, to now as uh, this book that can speak to the things that are happening in your life, in my life, and in the world around us. But it still had an original audience, right? I think we've said this a few times. We're still reading somebody else's mail, right? Somebody got the letter to the Corinthians first. It was to a specific church in a specific city during a specific time in history. I almost, that was really hard. Um, to say specific. I don't know if you caught that. Sorry. You guys can loosen up a little bit, okay? It's okay. We're all friends here. I might get a text at any minute and have to run out the door, but we'll see. Anyways, some of you didn't get it. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> We're going to better understand what it is that's happening in our Bibles when we remember who the Bible was first written to. Okay. One of the best ways for you and I to begin to study our Bibles is to go and try to figure out how would the first people to receive this letter have been thinking. 
What kind of, what set of eyes would they be wearing? Or uh, the fancy word for it is what worldview would they have when it came to how they looked at this letter or the scriptures? You might be asking like, what is a worldview? It's, it's just how we understand and live out our lives. Like the reality is that in all of us, there are spoken and unspoken assumptions that we live out of and that we understand the world through. There are just things that you and I believe, whether we realize it or not, that inform then how we live in our world. And there is much more than uh, Wi-Fi and indoor plumbing that's separating you and me from that first recipient of that letter, okay? There's a lot going on that we need to unpack together because Paul is about to open up this three-chapter-long discussion on something called spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit and some kind of power that exists in that reality to the Corinthian church. And he's making two really big assumptions that I don't think that I can make if I'm gonna teach this text to you uh, and do it justice. And so that's why we're pulling out of 1 Corinthians and we parked ourselves in the book of John. But here are the two big assumptions that Paul could make about his audience that I just cannot make. The first one is that they believed in an active and real spiritual realm. Angels, demons, spirits, the whole thing. So he would have assumed that they believed that a realm like that existed. And the other one is that they would have had a pretty good knowledge of who the Holy Spirit actually was. And I think for a variety of reasons that we're gonna get into, those are two assumptions that we can't make together. So I wanna stop and really figure out why that is. I wanna start with this idea of a spiritual realm worldview. So the reality as we sit here together is that right now there is a cosmic war being fought and the primary battlefield is on turf that we cannot see. Ephesians 6 verse 12, Paul writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this dark darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. A first century Corinthian absolutely would have accepted this without question. Somebody in 2019 living in America, it's not so easy, is it? Okay, why? Uh, the first reason is our culture puts stuff like that on the Discovery Channel, right, like Ghost Hunter, or it puts it on par with Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy, maybe even the Easter Bunny. No offense, if you still believed in Santa, I was doing you a favor, okay? But, but we're, we're kind of told, like, oh, to believe in spirits, like, that's something uneducated people believe in, or, or people on the other side of the world actually think exists. Like, we're conditioned to be skeptical. Did you know that? Like, as you grow up, as you're educated, the things you watch and learn, you're conditioned to be skeptical of anything you can't see. And so that's something in the way. And then the other thing I think is that we're hyper-materialistic. And I don't just mean we like to buy clothes and things, but it's we just really only base reality off the things we can see, right? If I can't see it, then it's hard for me to believe it. It's just an undercurrent that whether you and I acknowledge it or not, or even realize it or not, is part of how we live. So we're conditioned to be skeptical and we really only believe in the things we can see. But I'm telling you, if you're going to, to base your life off of an ancient book that says that God created you, that a couple of people were deceived by a guy named Satan who took the form of a snake, and then to solve that problem, God became a man and died, you need to make space for the spiritual world, right? There, there is no room in being a Christian to not include the spiritual realm. So it's something we have to have as a part of how we understand what it is to follow Jesus. 
Now, the, the other problem is when I begin to talk about like demons or spirits, like if you're like me, you begin to think about horror movies, right? Like The Nun, I think, isn't that one that came out? Or like, I remember watching Paranormal Activity back in college and not sleeping for a long time. Like, like but, but that's when you instantly think of like devils, you begin to think of the movies. And I'm telling you, that is one of Satan's best tricks is to misdirect you and convince you that that's actually how he shows up all the while he's really just getting you addicted to your phone, convinced objectifying other people is fine, and even normalizing things like pornography and abortion, right? So that's a misdirect of his where he's actually working in places that are far more dangerous because they're actually influential ideas that seep into the culture and then they're things that you just carry around as assumptions. Did you know recently? 47% of Christians in America said they think evangelism is wrong. Wait a minute. (laughs) The reason all of you are believers is because of evangelism. So so 47% of Christians think the thing that got you here is actually wrong. Sounds like maybe the forces of darkness are up to something, doesn't it? I'm just saying it's not in the movies we watch. It's in these other more subtle things. And There's a ditch you can fall into where you then believe like Satan's behind everything. Like if you get a cold, you're like, oh, it was the devil. It's like, no, it's because you only sleep three hours a night, right? (laughs) Or like the the age old, like, oh, I failed my test. It must have been a demon. And it's like, no, it must have been Netflix. Like, (laughs) that's why you failed the test. (laughs) That's actually not what you think it is. Um, But... You cannot live the Christian life without an understanding of the spiritual realm and that the reality of what you see isn't what you're really up against. That's what that verse said. It's not against flesh and blood, but against something else. Okay, so now we can see through one eye like a Corinthian. We need to see through the other, and that's with understanding the Holy Spirit. So, so the reality is when I say that, there is a spectrum in this room. There are so many people in this room, all kinds of experiences, thoughts, and ideas. Like maybe for you, you're like, oh, that's when I get goosebumps when I'm worshiping. And I'm like, maybe, or it's the HVAC turning on and it gets a little chilly because there's a lot of bodies in here. But, but I think we have a malnourished understanding of the Holy Spirit when we were actually supposed to be filled with the fullness of God when it comes to understanding who he is. And that's what I want to help us do tonight. Like I said, this room has all kinds of, of a spectrum. So from probably non-existence, you really didn't hear it talked about much. Or, or if you're like me, I came from a place where it was overemphasized. Like the Holy Spirit was, was just this crazy thing. A couple of my experiences, both good and bad. So, so I grew up uh, and told if I didn't speak in tongues, which is the secret prayer language given to believers, if I didn't speak in tongues, then I wasn't saved, Right? So then you're like, she came in a Honda Lift and Maja, Lucky Charms Life, and oh my gosh, like, you just do anything you can to try to convince your youth pastor you're saved, because he's telling you, you got to talk like that in order to be saved. That's bad, especially for a feeler, because then what you get, you get is you get addicted to emotional experiences, and if you want to follow God by your emotions, you're going to be constantly disappointed, because he's better than that, and he's firmer than that. But I was told experiences of the Holy Spirit were things that validated me. Emotional highs were the things that made me mature. But then, guys, I've had really good and powerful experiences. I would tell you right now, by his grace, I feel more spirit-led and empowered than ever. And even a few years ago, my wife, having a terrible anxiety attack in a bathroom, huddled in the fetal position, she was rocking back and forth. The only thing I could think of was to pray. And when I prayed, it came out in tongues. But what my wife heard was, be at peace. And her anxiety attack stopped. What do I do with that? the power of God, right? Or a few weeks ago, months ago, two months ago, 
My wife came home from the grocery store, smashes her hand, like straight up smashes her hand in the trunk door. It's ripped open and bloody. She comes in and my little four-year-old goes, daddy, what if we prayed for it? We go, okay, Finn, let's try it. Completely healed, okay? I'm not making that up. What do I do with that? The Holy Spirit is alive and he is active. And tonight I want to take back maybe narratives that have damaged you and take back lives that maybe Satan has spoken to you so that you can live the life of the spirit that you were supposed to live. And so that the rest of this conversation on who the Holy Spirit is and how he works can be a full and a real one. So there are a couple common camps that you'll actually find the Holy Spirit treated like really differently. So the first one is the one that I'm most familiar with growing up. And I, I don't wanna speak ill of them because the people that led me in that context, they really did want me to know Jesus. So it's not like they were intentionally doing that. I think like all of us, we just get some things wrong. So don't hear me dishonor them. I don't want that to be true. But Father, Son, Holy Experience, it makes it about the experience, but then often ignores the people having the, the character of the people having the experiences, okay? So it's like, you have all these Holy Spirit experiences, but you still like cheat on your taxes, cheat on your wife, you get really angry and you don't love anybody. Like there's a disconnect, okay? Because whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, it should lead to greater faith or a furthering of God's mission. Those are the two things that seem to always happen when the Spirit shows up. And when you make it about the experience, you really just make it about you. And that was never the point. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But Another thing, it, the, the phrase that I love is, it's not how high you jump, but how straight you walk afterwards. It's not how high you jump, but how straight you walk afterwards. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, if you experience him or feel led by him, well, it's not, oh my gosh, that was amazing. It's like, what happens after? What happens after? So a lot of us, because of the nature of the conference, we experience the Holy Spirit. When you're worshiping for that long, especially the worship, the Holy Spirit just seems to be present in the room. It's so palpable. But the true test of like what happened there, was it emotional or not, is what did your life look like afterwards? And not perfect, but did, did things begin to change? Is there a movement forward? And it's dangerous because then it makes you feel guilty, like I said, if you're not speaking in tongues or seeing things happen. Um, and that's just not the spirit of God. He never makes people feel less than or better than others in an arrogant way. Okay, the, the other camp, uh, father, son, holy denomination. So that's just like, the church taking authority and saying, we are the final say. So like, yes, the Holy Spirit's there, but really it's us who are guiding you. It just allows the authority of man to be louder and more authoritative than the voice of God, which is just manipulative and dangerous. Then there's the other one. It's Father, Son, and Holy Bible, which is, which is better, I think, than any of those. It's the Word of God honored which the Spirit speaks constantly through the Word of God, so maybe they don't even realize it, but they're still watching the Spirit of God speak. But the power that the Holy Spirit offers its people might not be talked about enough. Now here, I believe, is the way that God intended it based on what we see in the Scriptures. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're balanced in their role. Uh, we delight in each of their presence and we have a full and real relationship with each of those three. And you're like, those three? Okay, I'm gonna introduce a really uh, big theological word and try to unpack it. And if you're still confused, um, I'll send you to someone really smart like Jake Herring. But I'll try, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, who's that guy? You should come on Sundays. I want to introduce a really big theological word to you guys. That was funnier, okay? Listen, <laughs> listen. Anyways, the word Trinity. Okay? or Trinitarian God, Trinity, 
or Trinitarian God? You go, Trinitarian what? Like, it sounds like a Pokemon a little bit. I don't know. It's not a Bible word. You won't find it in the scriptures, but it does help us understand this beautiful mystery that God, who is one in his essence, expresses himself in three distinct ways. So there is one God who mysteriously and powerfully expresses himself in three different ways. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So here's an example of where they show up together in Scripture. It's Matthew 3, 16. When Jesus was baptized, there's Jesus, he went up, there's, that's the Son, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. There's the father with whom I'm well pleased. So in one moment, we see God the father, God the son, and God the Holy Spirit. And and I don't have time. So if you're like, that still doesn't make sense. I want you to know that's okay. It's an incredible mystery. You could spend your whole life trying to grasp it and you would never come close. And when you follow Jesus, you have to be comfortable with some certain levels of mystery. It just comes with who he is. But as mysterious as like this idea of the Trinity is, there is nothing mysterious about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And so we can spend the rest of our time unpacking those two things. This is what we're going to do. We're gonna figure out who is the Holy Spirit and what in the world does he do? So the first thing I want you to know is, is who he is. And the first thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit is he's not a new character that just shows up in the New Testament, okay? He's not like, okay, Jesus' contract was up. We need a new starring role. I know, that spirit guy, he would be great, right? I don't watch enough TV to actually have had an example. But I just want you to know, like, the Holy Spirit, it's not his first time showing up in the New Testament. I mean, he's in Genesis 1, the first few verses. It says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. He was there. And then as man was made, God said, let us make man in our image. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit sitting there together together creating mankind, and then all over the Old Testament. I don't have time to list all the places. You should absolutely go and find them. But you find the Holy Spirit dwelling in God's people to accomplish tasks, to speak prophetic words, to lead nations, to fill priests with the Spirit, to lead the people. All kinds of different prophets and miraculous things happen because the Spirit of God would come on people all throughout the Old Testament. So that's the first thing. He's not a new character. The second thing, it's a he, not an it, okay? The Holy Spirit is a he. In verses 16 and 17 that Bella read, over and over again, it says, uh, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you, okay? So it's not like Casper the ghost. He's not like floating around and you can't see him right now dumping spirit dust on you, okay? And it's not the force, right? We're not all like secretly Jedis and we can use this, the force. It doesn't work like that either. Uh, so that means you should never call the Holy Spirit it, right? You, you, you can talk to him, you can pray to him, refer to he, not it. And the Holy Spirit, it's not an emotion. It's not like, oh, I think I have the Holy Spirit because I feel this emotion. He might well up emotion in you, but he's not an emotion. I just think it's important, and, and the reality that he's a he means this really good thing is true, that you and I, were, that's funny, we're meant to be in just as full a relationship. You'll get it. Come on with me. Um, you and I, were meant to be in just as full a relationship with the Holy Spirit as we are with God the Father and Jesus the Son, that we can have as full a relationship as we do with God the Father and God the Son. 
See, he is a, you can, you can pray to him, you can talk to him. He actually experiences what it seems to be emotions and even has a will. I'm gonna bust through a few things to help you understand that. In Ephesians 4.30, it says the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Grieved, if you're grieved, the kind of thing it's talking about is, is if, imagine a parent living in a home with their child who consistently does drugs, is disrespectful to them, is never home on time, and is constantly doing all the things they know they shouldn't do. The Holy Spirit can be grieved as it tries to dwell in a believer who continues to pursue sin and darkness. And grief, it's not like anger. Grief is sadness. It's pain. It's this like, why is my child choosing to hurt them? The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Another thing he can be, be is quenched, which is just a strange word. I thought it's splinched from Harry Potter, but it's quenched, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 you can actually like stop the Spirit's desire to move if you don't acknowledge him, invite him. You can ignore his voice of correction. Another thing, he can be resisted, Acts 7.51. So when, when you feel the gentle push of conviction and you just turn the volume down, you can resist the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's not, I don't want you to get this caricature of like Jesus hanging out on your shoulder all the time. Like, oh, you should go there and help that old lady across the street, right? Like, that's, that's not what I want you to see. It's, it's not like a cartoon on your shoulder. It's actually the presence of God in you, okay? The Holy Spirit is the presence of God dwelling in his people. And we need to slow down long enough to let this, like, bake our noodle a little bit. You understand me? Because you have to understand the presence of God in the Old Testament and even part of the New Testament, if you were in it, you were dead, it was covered by this 30-foot-long, 30-foot-tall, four-inch-thick veil because anyone who was in the presence of God would die. And yet because of Jesus, now the presence of God lives in us, right? Like, what the heck? You cannot let that pass by. The presence of God that once killed mankind is the very thing now bringing it to life. It dwells in us, cultivating spiritual life in each of us. And that is the story of the Bible. The beginning of the Bible and the end are exactly the same. It can be summarized as this, God with us. God with us. From the beginning, he wanted to be with us. In the end, he makes it sure. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is just the, is the melody that preludes to the symphony of the new heavens and the new earth. Like if you think the power of the Holy Spirit as you experience it is incredible, now just wait. It's just a prelude to the entire symphony that's coming because God is telling a story. And he's telling it now in us. Okay, so what on earth is this spirit up to? What is he doing inside of us? That's where we, we, we find. If you, if you want to know, like, what does the spirit do? Just ask, what would Jesus do? And I'm not talking about just the bracelet. But, like, what would Jesus be up to if he was with you? The first thing that verse 16 in John 14 says is that he'll give us an advocate. So if you think he's an advocate, God for us, in us. Okay, and, and the way I want to describe this to you guys, have, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Beautiful Boy. Uh, I saw it on an airplane recently. It's got Steve Carell, a.k.a. Michael Scott. Um, but it's this true story of this father whose son got addicted to drugs and his life spiraled out of control, eventually gaining hold of it. It's a powerful, powerful film. But this, this picture, uh, a lot of times when you're in rehab, you actually get an advocate, or they call it a sponsor. 
They get this person who's there to advocate for you, to stay off drugs, to stay clean, to remember who you are. And there are these powerful moments in this movie. There's one especially where the, the, the son, he calls Simon his advocate and he's just struggling. He really wants to go back to, to crystal meth. He doesn't know what to do. He almost wants to take his own life. And he's like, Simon, I just wanna do it. I know it's what I really want. And the whole time Simon's going, no, that's not who you are anymore. No, that's what you used to do, but now you know it's not good for you. That's not who you are anymore. You don't have to say yes to that. That's not the thing that you are. And he goes, yes, you are a drug addict, which is what the Holy Spirit does. You know, he convicts us of sin. He says, this is who you are. But then he says, but this is who you've become. So like an advocate on the phone pleading, you have to understand the Spirit, he'll remind you who you are. Romans 8, 16 says he seals our adoption and reminds us. So when you find yourself faced with sin, there is a voice not calling you an idiot or guilting you, but pleading with you. This isn't who you are anymore. You don't have to choose this. You are a child of God now. Please stop going to these places. There is so much more for you. He's advocating for you. And then when you fall, he doesn't sit there and criticize you. He comforts you. It says in 1 Peter 4 that he comforts us, especially in our suffering. And like a good sponsor or advocate, he sits with us and he says, you can get clean again. You can get back up and you can do this. And lastly, he, and this is where we're going to make the switch, he then empowers us. He empowers us to live into our new identity. We doing all right? Okay. He's God with us in us. Doing all that Jesus would have done if he was living every day beside us and then empowering us to go and be his kingdom people in the world advocating for our new identity, pushing us to live the life that we were always supposed to live, comforting us when it's hard, reminding us of the truth. And then the last thing that he does is he empowers us to go and be his people in the world. If you are a note taker, you can put down, he is the empowering presence. He's the empowering presence. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit does two things when he comes to empower. He empowers us as his individual people and then he empowers us as his collective church. So first he empowers his people. So there was this time where my wife and I lived in a very, very small house and we would keep the heat at like 58 because we weren't making like any money. Uh, you could see your breath routinely. It's just how you gotta live. Some of you are in that life, right? Um, like it was so small that like anywhere in the house, if you broke wind, they would hear it. Like there's no safe place. That's all I'm saying, very small. But what we didn't know, we had just bought this new lamp. We were excited. It's like when you're young and married, even silly Ikea lamps are like a big deal. And we're gonna plug it in, light up our living room so we can have friends over. And we keep trying all these outlets just not working. We're like, what in the world is going on? What we didn't know is that we were plugging it into a line of outlets that the breaker was off. So like there was no way it was going to work, right? And so we kept plugging in and we're like, what's going on? What's going on? What's go like, it's just not working. So we were convinced like the lamp, it's the lamp. Like that's totally what it is. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So we're like, let's take it back. This is a bummer. We're going to take it back. Then my mother-in-law, she's like, wait, try it in the other room. We go in, like there it was, it worked. A lot of us live our Christian life like Lisa and I were. We try to live the life that Jesus has given it to us, plugging it into outlets that don't work. How many of us think, if I just accrue more Bible knowledge and plug it into that, I'll be able to live my Christian life? 
Well, how many of us plug into just, I'm gonna try harder and then I'll be able to live my Christian life? How many of us plug into guilt? If I just make my, myself feel absolutely horrible, I'll be able to live my Christian life. No, what you have to realize is you have to plug yourself into the power of the Holy Spirit if you want to live the Christian life. Not into your intellect or your legalism, your ability to try harder, but into the power of the Holy Spirit because he empowers his people to do the things that he did and build the kingdom through the church. In the scriptures, you will find that everything Jesus did on earth was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything he did, often in Mark and Luke, it consistently says little phrases like, through the power of the Holy Spirit, power left him, by the Spirit, from the Spirit, led by the Spirit, over and over again describing Jesus, and now that very same power is dwelling inside of each of us who know him and are made new by him. The same one. That means there's nothing separating you from the apostles who sat in the upper room that night and had the whole thing quake when they first received the Holy Spirit. Peter was a bumbling fool and a fisherman who then stood up in front of 3,000 people and preached a sermon where they all got saved. Not because he suddenly had really good jokes or was a really compelling teacher, but because the power of the Holy Spirit was what he was tapped into and then what was what was moved through him. That means, Salt Company, that you can win more battles against sin than you lose. You will never escape sin in this life, but too many of you live defeated. You need to plug into the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be led by the Spirit to live the life he wants you to live. Like you can do the things that Jesus did, right? So many of us try to live by our own strength, but if Jesus was not living by his own strength, but relied on the power of God, the Spirit, to do the things that he did and live the life that he needed to live, how could we do anything different? And here's the thing is the primary goal of your life when you wake up every day, it's not to survive, although some days that's all you can do, right? The primary goal of your life is not to get really good grades in your classes or to make sure you go to all the things, graduate and make everyone happy. The primary reason, if you know Jesus, that you wake up in the morning and go to the places you go is because God has invited you into his work and adventure. And he wants for some crazy reason to use broken you and me to do it. I'm telling you, if you begin to ask him to invite you into what he's doing, which is what Jesus did all the time, he will do it. He threw me a softball last week, you guys. Me and Josiah, we were gonna meet for Jimmy John's. And I go walking, I had literally just prayed, God, I wanna, I wanna just be used by you. It's this prayer that I've been trying to pray. And all of a sudden this dude comes and goes, hey man, it was so easy, he goes, I wanna talk to you. And I was like, thanks, here we go. Like, <laughs> he just talked to me, he's like, I'm Deontay. He's just a really great guy. Josiah walks up, we got to pray for him. He didn't come to know Jesus, but that day he had two believers actually look him in the eyes and tell him that God loved him and explain the gospel to him, right? That is the kind of life that I want to live. I don't think that when we read Acts, we have to go, man, that would have been great. I believe that we can live that kind of life right now. I believe that that is possible. And so I ask, like, what are we waiting for? I wanna teach you how to like, cultivate this life, okay? How do we live this way? How do we live a life more empowered by the Spirit? The first thing that you and I need is intimacy with God. We need a personal palpable, like real relationship with God. We have to know him. We have to walk with him. We have to study his word. We have to pray. One thing you could do, this really cool uh, old monk, he called it practicing the presence of God. It's where you just acknowledge that God is with you in every situation. Like you can start like I did. I just started setting an alarm, like every three hours, like acknowledge that God is with you. It will change the way that you look at the world around you. 
if you begin to acknowledge the fact that he's with you. Second thing, learn his voice, first in scripture and then outside of it. And you're like, that sounds kind of freaky. It's actually, uh, I think, really simple. When I speak of listening to God's voice, I mean developing this practice of like asking God what he's doing. Like before you leave for class or work, say, God, show me if there's someone you want me to talk to. Show me if there's someone you want me to pray for. Show me what it is that I'm supposed to do today. What do you want to do? So that's the first thing. The second one, it's obedience. So Jesus, he said, if you love me, you will obey me. But in case you're like, wait, is that legalism? No, he assumes relationship. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Not just do what I said. So out of this intimate relationship we have with him, we then begin to obey him. Another word you could give to obedience is trust. The Bible lays out really clearly what it looks like to live the life that Jesus lived. And then all throughout the New Testament explains how to do that in the world around us. If we trust him, we'll try to live that way. So we need to begin to actually live out the obedient things that he's calling us to do. And, and simply I wrote down, when you choose to do the things Jesus says to do in your life, that's called obedience. When you try to follow him, it happens. And then the last one, I think this is especially true um, for older millennials like me and then all of you guys, Gen Z and stuff like that. I really think it takes holiness. Holiness, so taking sin seriously. So I think we've talked about that in, in like sermons past, but like getting as far away from sin as possible, trying to live a holy life. And if you're like, how did you figure this out? I just looked at the life of Jesus, right? He was so intimate with the Father. And then he said, I only see what I, I only do what I see the Father doing. And he lived a sinless, perfect, holy life, right? So it's just following in his footsteps. But the goal is not just for you and I to go off and, and live this life with Jesus on our own. He had never intended that and, and never intends that for your life. He always wanted it to be done collectively, building the church. Like he's literally going to spend the next three chapters talking about how he's given gifts to individuals for the collective good of the church. And so that's the second thing he does. He empowers his church. The mission is for the we and not just the me. He empowers his church. And a lot of you guys uh, hopefully know what World War II is. I just have to be safe because some of you don't know what a floppy disk is. But uh, yeah, see, some of you didn't know what that was. We'll talk later. But World War II, one of the main strategies of the allies was to get 12 beachheads, they called them, on the European coastline. And, and D-Day is the famous day where they tried to take five separate beachheads. You're like, what is that? It's a defended position on a beach taken from the enemy by landing forces from which an attack can be launched. The church is meant to be a beachhead of the kingdom of God in a broken world. The church is meant to be this beachhead in enemy territory, taking back what is rightfully God's. And so we have to collectively work together to strengthen and, and work towards the good and, and empower the church to be all that it was supposed to be, this beacon of light and hope for a broken and dying world. And so he does that by giving us each gifts and abilities, not for ourselves, but for the church. Any gift you've ever been given, if you begin to use it for yourself, you're polluting it, which the Corinthians will do. But when you take all that the Holy Spirit gives you and you begin to give it away, that's the kind of life Jesus lived, isn't it? Like, think about that. He was always looking for someone to help, someone to speak to, someone to heal, 
someone to bring hope to. And then he doesn't say, okay, a couple of you individualists. He says, no, okay, my church. Go and now do that. And so the Spirit empowers the church. He deploys us as these outposts. And we take people back through the power of God from the bondage of sin and death. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. And so I think, if you're like me, maybe your heart's a little jostled, like, okay, what do I do? I don't know what's going on. I'm going to help you a little bit, okay? Uh, so, so first, the band is going to come up, but it's going to look a little different. See, the experiences I used to have when it came to nights where we talk about the Holy Spirit is they would try to amp up the emotion as much as possible, get the goosebumps flying and the tears flowing, again, out of, like, I think a good heart, but with really lackluster results. So you're only going to see a few of them, no full band. And it's honestly just to create an atmosphere where God can speak and where the Holy Spirit can move. And so they, if they're not already started, the band can start to come up right now. Because I really do think one of the greatest things um, keeping the church from really moving forward is leaning back into the power of the Holy Spirit because I think we are either frightened by it because of the ways it's been overused or just totally unaware of it, not even for bad reasons. I think we need to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And um, I think some of you have scars and wounds, and I think tonight, like, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you and wants to heal them. Um, but then I think some of you maybe are like me, and you're like, I want to live that life. Like, that, that thing, I, I want that. I want to stop plugging in to all of these false sources, and I want to plug in to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, here's what I'm going to ask you to do in a few minutes. Um, so the Christian life, it's filled with symbols, right? Like, so baptism, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. Communion, it's an outward symbol of an inward covenant reality. Even raising your hands, that's an outward symbol of an inward reality of your heart. And so I'm gonna invite you, uh, if, you, if you're like, yes, I want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, like, or if you're like, I just, I still, I'm not sure, but, but yes, I wanna live the full life that God intended for me. When they start to play, if that's you, I would just invite you to stand up with your hands out, just a symbol, if there's nothing magical that will happen, or to get on your knees. Those would be my two things that I would love for you. And we're just gonna worship. Because it's not that we had to preach a sermon or pray a certain way to invite the Spirit in. He was always here. I think it's just a lot of our hearts and the junk of our life that gets in the way. And so I want to give space for us to let our guards down and let the Spirit speak to us. So let me pray to that end. I just want to say, um, come Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the loving Father who adopted children who no one else would have wanted. Jesus the Son, the great older brother and Savior who came for his rebellious siblings. And then the Holy Spirit who empowers his people not to go around doing magic tricks, but to be naturally supernatural and bring hope to a dying world. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are meant to reveal the life that is to come, to demonstrate a small speck of the already not yet reality of the kingdom. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come and you would break chains 
um, that you would correct false narratives and that you would empower your people. And I pray tomorrow that everyone would wake up and feel totally the same, but absolutely aware that they are not alone in the day that they're trying to walk tomorrow, but that they have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit with them. God, I have so many dreams of what could happen if we fought all of us to live like that. And you tell me that you're gonna do more than we could ask or imagine. And so I just wanna pray in faith, knowing you're gonna do something incredible. But we just invite you, Holy Spirit, would you move now?